Welcome, everybody. We're here once again for another episode of the Pelham Forum podcast today, Purgatory. So what's so special about Purgatory? Most Catholics already know about it, or if they don't think we got a different twist. Remember that flaming sword the angel was holding at Fatima? Well, you might not know it also has something to do with Purgatory and Fatima having to do with the rehabilitation of sinners. Let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of the Rosary, Queen of Heaven, pray, pray for, for us. You heard him with me. I have Landon de Pasquale with me. And uh, let's get to this quote that we're talking about with flaming swords and purgatory. St. Ambrose of Milan, a father of the church, said, Before the resurrected, and if we're going to be in the four last things and after death uh, brought for our judgment, before the resurrected lies a fire, which all of them must cross. This is the baptism of fire foretold by John the Baptist in the Holy Ghost and the fire. It is the burning sword of the cherub who guards the gate of heaven before which everyone must pass. All shall be subjected to examination by fire, for all who want to return to heaven must be tried by that fire. (laughs) (laughs) You know, purgatory is super easy, and uh, it's not painful at all, and it's just not really a big deal, right, John? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I I hear that from from St. Ambrose, and I'm like, does that mean even if I'm going to be a saint, I have to go through that? I mean, it sounds yeah. like everybody. <laughs> I'm already sweating just hearing the quote. <laughs> I'm I so last week we did the the four last things, and we were talking about. I kind of skipped past purgatory. I'm glad you're with me because, I mean, purgatory is one of those things that people think that the church just made up as it went along. But I mean, Saint Ambrose is there from the beginning, right? Yeah, so my favorite, I have to say, I, I, I'm going to take us off on a slight tangent just to begin with. Um, sure. Because my favorite is just about, it's got to be every week, just about every week, I hear from someone suggesting, oh, you know, the the church totally uh, got rid of that whole purgatory thing. Don't you know they, they ditched it already? Oh, yeah, We're Vatican We don't need it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and usually, usually they don't know enough to even know what Vatican II is, right? It's it's usually just that. Oh yeah, I heard they got rid of, of purgatory. Um, and it's just some weird kind of neuron firing in the back of their head that reminds them of something that they might have heard ten years ago. Hmm. I I think you're right because I I think that people think that or they must think it they, it's like the confusion over limbo. Yeah, it's almost they, they see it just like they would the theological construct, right? So they see limbo, which isn't dogma, but is a very important theological construct to make sure that we understand how original sin works, right? As soon as we ditch limbo, we have all these other problems with how we handle original sin. But with purgatory, it's not just a helpful theological construct, right? It's it's dogma. It's, it's, it's central to the faith. It's not something that we could just ditch and decide we don't need anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you mean these things aren't optional? 
Yeah. Um, something about that flaming sword, um, it doesn't sound like you get to choose whether you get to go through it or not, right? <laughs> well, and I like the title Original Sin, too, because um, that's a consequence of the of the first fall of Adam and Eve. And, and there's that flaming sword placed outside paradise the, uh, on the other side of that chasm, so to speak, that our Lord mentions in the parable of the rich man. Um yeah, we see that double piece, right? We see the the angel standing outside of Eden with a flaming sword, and then we see Lazarus and Divus with that same sort of chasm, right? Mm-hmm. And in both cases, I, I guess you could say, in the second case of Lazarus and Divus, right, there's no hope. Right? There's no hope for Divus, the rich man. He's He's stuck where he is. Yeah. But yeah. in the case of our first parents, and in the case of the angel of Fatima, and in the case of St. Ambrose— there's still a hope for those that have to go through that fire. And that hope is both their actions here on earth, right? But also the prayers of the saints and the prayers of uh, those holy or maybe not so holy people here on earth who are praying for them. Hmm. Do you think that fire, is this fire different than the, our Lord, the diva said that, that, that was, he was uh, immediately sent after his judgment to a place of eternal fire. I mean, purgatory is yeah. not forever, is it? No, no. And we see our Lord was sent down to the limbo of the fathers, right? Um, we use in the in the Apostles' Creed, we use the term hell. But what he's talking about uh, when he dies and goes to Harrow Hell is not the eternal fire of the damned, right? It's not the hell of the damned, but it's the limbo of the fathers, those patriarchs that had come before who were being saved in anticipation of the Messiah out of that limbo, out of that waiting period, Sheol is the kind of Hebrew word that gets used for it, right, into mm-hmm. heaven. Um, and in some ways, uh, they kind of skip out on purgatory because they spent so much time in, in that limbo of the fathers, right, <laughs> waiting and anticipating for the Messiah. Um, except for Adam and Eve, as we know, they stand at the top of purgatory and Dante's purgatory, and they are the ones stuck ferrying everyone across, Right. Getting everyone out of purgatory up into heaven, since it was their fault that we're all there to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> you brought up Dante's purgatory. Well, and right behind me, uh, I have an icon of the harrowing of hell, and and it's always interesting that our Lord standing over death. He's got the you know the shackles and the chains broken beneath him, and the first two pulled out of the grave are Adam and Eve. Yeah. Um. But. Hmm. So when we get to uh, to purgatory itself, is it is it? I almost get it from Saint Ambrose that I guess that's the difference between a saint and 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 somebody that doesn't. I mean, a saint's somebody that we know is in heaven, right? Yeah. So that means they made and it some of them the fire. had to go through purgatory, right? I guess. I mean, I, I always wondered is that. I mean, I I wouldn't know. I mean, because we're. <laughs> <laughs> So from personal experience, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, no. yes. No, Necro- none, none of that. None of that. <laughs> We're not allowed to engage in necromancy. No, no, none of that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the presumption is we've got a, a couple classes of saints, right? We've got those saints that went up to heaven straight away, um, that at the moment of their death, they were in the beatific vision. Um, there are saints like St. Saint John the Baptist or um, obviously Our Lady. But I even think of saints like St. Thomas, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who 
I think was present to the beatific vision at the moment of his death. But obviously there were other saints that probably needed to uh, work their way up to heaven, so to speak, right? Who needed, still had some uh, venial sins that needed purging. They still had some temporal punishments that need, needed fulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. And then we, and then we of course have the martyrs, right? And we all, we know that the martyrs automatically skip purgatory and get to go straight to heaven. They don't have to suffer through any of those pains or punishments. Hmm. Hmm. So the way I said it last week, and I want to see if you think this is fair. I said, if we just kind of miss the mark, there's a mercy that, you know, we could still kind of get some things straightened out if we don't die in mortal sin. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it is. This is how I, how I talk to my friends who, uh, who are still Protestant. Um, I think this is a helpful way for them to understand this because I think they have this tendency to believe, oh, well, purgatory is actually this, this kind of Catholic derivation where we add this extra judgmental God on top of God's mercy. So Mm. if God was really merciful, everyone would just go to heaven. Um, But Catholics have this really judgmental God. And so you have this extra punishment you have to go through. And I think it's exactly the opposite. Um, One of the things that kind of stuck with me in my conversion process as I was becoming Catholic was I was reading uh, Pope Benedict's uh, Space Salve. Uh-huh. And one of the things that he mentions in it is he talks about the hope of salvation, and he talks about the necessity of purgatory, and he gives the example of the slave and the slave master. That The two die on the same night, right? The slave mm-hmm. and the slave master both die. They can't both go up to heaven immediately, right? There needs to be some recompense. The, the slave master has to do penance for what he's done to the slave. He has to make right mm. the ills that he's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of always stuck with me because it's not that purgatory is some kind of addition to the church for God's punishment or God's justice. Exactly the opposite. If only the people that were perfect at their death were able to enter heaven, there'd be a lot fewer people in heaven. I mean, we already yeah. know that the, the road is very narrow to heaven and the road to destruction is very wide. Oh, but, Landon, these people, <laughs> I know nobody's in I hell. Know. <laughs> Vatican two emptied well, hell out, right? We can't know with any assurance that anyone's in hell, right? I mean, Dante's <laughs> hell is certainly not populated. It's empty <laughs> wastelands, as far as the eye can see. But that's what that's what I wonder. Okay, now Socrates, they said that after the Greeks, and it was actually Fulton Sheen brings this up too. After the Greeks had poisoned Socrates, one of his on his dying on his dying breath, he said, "Oh, and I owe a hen to Aristophanes." You know, you were talking about debts, like the debt, the slave master. And the, yeah. I, I wonder, you know, Socrates was able to discern that there's still some sort of like accounting system and reckoning that occurs after death that we're still after we die. You know, how much of that? Look at, just look at how the Greeks treated the bodies of the dead or the Romans for that matter. Mm-hmm. Right. If that was it, if there was no importance after death. It wouldn't matter what you did to people's bodies after they died, right? Mm-hmm. You pile them all in a dump and burn them or do whatever with them. But the fact that there was such a strong care for how bodies were taken care of in the ancient world, that they were buried, and that we see constant villains made out of those who don't bury the dead, even their enemies, I think shows us that there is still there's still some care afterwards, right? There's still some importance to ensuring that things happen the right way after you die, so to speak. 
Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess kind of what I was wondering is, is, I mean, I think we tend to think of purgatory as just dealing with attachment to sin, but it almost makes me feel like there's two things going on there. There's, there's the getting rid of the attachment to sin, but there's like, and like when you brought up the slave master, there's a whole other level of your unfinished business here. Yeah. You have to make right the things that you didn't hear on earth. Uh, that makes, yeah. I mean, and how do you do, you know, well, okay. If somebody's hearing this and they're like, oh my God, I don't have anything to do with purgatory. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give it a little small example. Years ago, I, I was, uh, uh, buying something at a store Yeah, and the clerk gave me a discount on them thinking that I got these things from the clearance bin when I had, when I didn't. And, uh, yeah. at first I thought, oh, goody. But then as I thought about it more, I'm like, no, I knew the error there and I could have corrected it. So I went, yeah. I went back and I said, no, we need to fix this. <clears throat> and they were like, well, I wouldn't worry. You know, the person behind the counter was kind of like, well, don't worry about it. And then I said, no, yeah. I, I don't want to pay that difference in purgatory. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can't even think of, like, how do you make money in purgatory? You know, like, I can't even quite like, okay, yeah, it was just a dollar or whatever, but I don't know what that would mean in purgatory. So, <laughs> Right. You've got 10,000 years for that dollar. I know. Like, you you have to row the boat across the, uh, Chiron for, like, 10 years or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, when we get on that, like... The Orthodox have this idea, these toll house, I don't know, I don't ascribe to the toll house thing. He's 39 toll yeah, houses. Yeah, sorry, that's, yeah, that's, that's too far for me. And then you get into, <laughs> like, the Greek myths, but I brought it up a minute ago, like, where you get Chiron and Charybdis and the, 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 the lake of fire, you know, you have to go across the river and you need to pay the boatman and stuff, but. Well, so I think those, I think those Greek, so I, I think those Greek images are really helpful, right? I mean, there's a reason why Dante uses them. I mean, even our Lord describes. Mm-hmm hell in the afterlife in Greek terms like Hades. Um, what was it? I was, uh, it was, yeah, it was one of the Requiem masses, um, in the prayers for the Requiem mass, there's a reference to Tartarus, right? Yeah. So even our, even our prayers for our Requiem mass, and that's the the old right Requiem mass, right? I don't think the I don't think the new right references Tartarus. (laughs) I've never heard it in English. No, (laughs) (laughs) the the old right, the old right. They, uh, I, I, it's got to be. I think it's the collect. Uh, I think it's the opening collect Mm. references Tartarus, and so I think there's a truth there in that our Lord and the Church understood that those images, those Greek images, were particularly effective for. Describing the afterlife, and I, I don't think it's by chance that Dante uses those images too to describe the afterlife, right? Because they're particularly apt for that description. Yeah. Well, in Dante's Purgatory, you know, I think everybody's always fascinated with. Well, at least I was. I'm going to speak for myself. I kind of skipped Purgatory. I found it was boring because I want to read Inferno. i've since gone back and picked up stanzas and i don't know that i've ever read the thing uh, straight through but i mean that's i think that's kind of one of the reasons i skipped past it because i'm like oh he's just talking about you know the greek stuff so i just kind (laughs) of you know i have to say i've got a i've got a really soft spot for purgatory I, i think of the three in the divine comedy it's my favorite 
Really? Okay. Yeah. Because, and there's there's a couple reasons for that. I think for one, um, obviously our our faith doesn't have a whole lot of details on purgatory, mm-hmm. and obviously Dante is not even remotely magisterial, but I think he's very helpful in fleshing out how to think about purgatory in a way that's consistent, right? It's not that his descriptions are exact. It's not that it's exactly how it's going to be. But when you think about Dante's description of purgatory, where people need to work off their sins by committing the opposite of the actions they committed here on earth, you go, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. But I think that you, you see this, this kind of liturgical role that comes up in, in purgatory. And it, it obviously doesn't have any place in Inferno for good reason. But it's stuff like the the chanting of the psalms and praying certain prayers from the divine office at certain times. Mm-hmm. And, and I've always found that to be really cool because it attaches into the cycle of our day into the day of purgatory. And more importantly, it shows us that those prayers aren't just there by chance, that they actually have some sort of importance, both for us here on earth to help us avoid purgatory, but also for those souls that are in purgatory to help free them from the punishment, from the pains that they're suffering. Yeah. Do you think it's fair for people that, uh, you know, I've heard people through the years, and I know I know that their tongue, most of the time when you hear this, I think your tongue's firmly in their cheek. But I think Catholics in particular, you know, they get this idea of... Um, well, I'll never be worthy of heaven, so I'm just going to aim for purgatory and avoid hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, so, when I, so when I was on staff at a parish, um, you know, I, I, I was confronted by this, and I actually, I, I would talk to people very explicitly about it. I said, look, when you aim for purgatory, you're effectively damning yourself. And everyone would get really like bent out of shape about this, right? Wow, wow. And because because I would say that, and then I would say it's the same thing with your your absolute minimums, right? Okay, mm-hmm. if you just aim for the absolute minimum of what the church requires, right? The the precepts of the church: receive the Eucharist once a year, go to mass on uh, Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, do your one confession, um, make sure you get married in the church, uh, make sure you fulfill the fasting and abstinence. Um, something, something about evangelization and then uh, caring for the, the needs of the church. Yeah. If you, if you point for, if you order your life towards hitting those bare minimums, you are going to end up in hell. And, mm-hmm. and they would, people would completely freak out and they go, how could you say that? Are you saying that, that fulfilling what the church says isn't going to get you to heaven? I'd say, no, of course not. If you do those things, if you do what the church asks, if you do the precepts of the church, you're going to get to heaven. The problem is, is that anyone who aims for the precepts of the church almost never fulfills them. Yeah, because that's they not what it's about, come is in it? right under. Right. So, I mean, the, the example that I always use is, okay, uh, how often should you go to confession? Well, I tell people, you should go to confession every two weeks. Uh-huh. Well, well why? Well, the Here. reality is... Always good for a plenary indulgence. That's one reason. Right. I mean, that, for one thing, you're, you're getting all your indulgences. But for another thing, 
we all kind of know you go, oh, I'm going to get to confession every two weeks. And then a month goes by and you haven't gone. Yeah. And you go, oh, man, I really need to go. The difference of aiming for two weeks and getting your month in versus aiming for a month and getting your six month in is very different. Mm. Mm-hmm. Aiming for the bare minimum of the precepts of the church, you can fulfill it. You can do it. You can get to heaven that way. But if you miss, if you're off by a degree, you're in hell. And so that that's the kind of point that I try and make to people is aim higher than the bare minimum yeah. so that you fail. If you miss the mark, if you don't quite get it, you still have the bare minimum to fall back on. <laughs> you're still on the trajectory to hit what you want to do. Uh-huh. Make those things such a important, such an integrated part of your life that you just do those things. You just do the things that are going to get you to heaven. But if you aim for it, you start going to mass every couple weeks, and then you're at mass once a month, and then you haven't gone to confession in three years, and who knows where you end up from there. Mm -hmm. You aim for purgatory, you're probably going to end up in hell. Yeah. Because all it takes is a degree off, just coming right underneath that threshold, and you're done. Well, because I I guess that's, that's kind of you. Let me run this past you. I'm going to play semantics for a minute because I can't help it. I'm half Greek and I'm a lawyer. <laughs> Purgatory is not really a destination, is it? It's not. So it's not like you could like you can't. That's kind of why I skipped it in the four last things. You can't really like aim for purgatory. No. If you aim for purgatory, you're in trouble. Yeah. Because you're just saying, okay, I want to. I want to stop at the gate. Now, I will say this. There's a difference in hoping for purgatory, right? Oh, yeah. There's a, I think there's a difference in aiming for, like, I don't need to be a saint, so I'm going to aim for purgatory, versus, man, I really hope I make it to purgatory. And when I say that to my friends, especially my Protestant friends, they freak out. <laughs> well, we'll get to the Protestants in a minute. I'm going to bring up Luther. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to hover on this target problem because yeah. last week, I know you didn't hear the, the four last things yet, but I brought up the story of Andrew Bobola, the most horrific martyrdom ever. And his last, I brought it up in case of hell because I said, you know, why is it, hell's not just there to scare us and God's smart and the church is smart, a good mother, because she knows that the, it, it, the motives can still be there. And what happened was the Cossacks had, had raided. They see Bobla saying mass. He immediately fell to his knees and said, Lord, thy will be done. They tortured him for, I mean, just horrific things, ripped fingernails out, plucked an eye out. His last recorded words, they would do this stuff and he would say, Lord, save me from the fires of hell. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's one thing to say, I don't want to go to hell. And I think some people that say, well, I hope to land in purgatory, they're basically saying, I want to avoid hell. Right. I think that's fair. But I know some, yeah. you know, I think we could fall into this idea of mediocrity. We're like, yeah, well, I'm going to shoot for the middle. Right. I stamped my time card for the weekend. I'm good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm the Catholic, I'm the Catholic middle manager bureaucrat, right? <laughs> Which nobody remembers after they're gone anyway. <laughs> I went in, I stamped my card, and I promptly missed the mark and went to hell. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and you know, I wonder if we put it in Dante's terms to like what that what that kind of uh what that kind of like punishment would be like if you have like a time. Well, no, exactly what it would be, right? It's the folks outside of the gates of hell who are running after the banner and they have to switch from banner to banner and they never actually in, even get to go inside the gates of hell. Why? Because they never chose something in their life. Oh, oh, oh. And, and so they have to live a life with felt banners. Yeah, they have to live a life with felt banners, <laughs> jumping I, from one felt banner to another. I hate felt banners. And they probably say stuff like <laughs> faith and, you know, uh, community and fellowship. And What about the ones, though, that have the Holy Spirit coming down? Huh. 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 You mean like that? Yeah, they, they do that like uh, LSD inspired, like asymmetrical dove kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I look at that stuff rainbows, and I'm like, yeah. what's wrong with these people? You know, yeah. Or their scissors were bad. broken when they cut it out or something. You know, yeah, it's pretty bad. So, okay, one of the things that that let's 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 switch over to one of your favorite topics here for a minute. Um, uh, we've got all the people. One of the things I just railed on and railed on last week is that the same people that are praising Martin Luther for the 500th anniversary. It seems like all those same people are the ones that are telling us that hell's empty. Yeah. Luther. And I'm going to, I'm going to pull a quote from, uh, from father Harden here real quick. He, he, in talking on purgatory, he brings up that, uh, um, Pius Pope Leo the 10th was the one that condemned the series of propositions of Martin Luther, including the following. He condemned that uh, purgatory cannot be proved from sacred scripture, which is the canon. The souls in purgatory are not sure about their salvation, at least not all of them. Moreover, it has not been proved from reason or from the scriptures that they are beyond the state of merit or of growing in charity. Now, that those were things that Luther had claimed. Yeah. Now... That's obviously not true because, like, just like we heard from Saint Ambrose, he's bringing up the the you know that's in scripture about the about the sword, the flaming sword placed at the cherub holding that sword at the gate to paradise. Yeah, and Saint Paul's really clear about it too. Well, what's Saint Paul say? Uh, it's First uh, Corinthians, I think, where he talks about uh, going through the fire and the straw and imperfect things being burned away, and all that's left is the gold or the the precious metals that are purified. Oh, he's not talking about purgatory, Landon. <laughs> Actually, uh, fun little side note: the uh, the New American Bible, the Bible of our bishops, has a footnote explicitly stating that that passage is not about purgatory. Really? Yeah. I well, see. Okay, I'm going to fess up something for both for you and for our listeners. Um, yeah, I don't read the NAB. Yeah, if you give me a second, I'll find the footnote. Oh, no talking? problem. I'll talk. You look. I, I have an old confraternity version from the 50s, and then uh, most of the time, uh, readers of my past blog posts will see that I most of the time pull from uh, the Dewey Rhymes Bible online, the DRBO, and I know, I know people say, oh, but the English is archaic. It's hard to read. Yeah, that's true. Some of the, some of the phraseology is awkward in it, but the words aren't. The words haven't been deprecated. No, the it, words mean something. Yeah. And um, you can usually skip the, 
skip the awkward stuff and still get a better gist of it than, you know, and I guess I'm a, in my opinion, I'm going to say it that way because, and, and you say it that way too, because, uh, um, I don't want anybody thinking that we're slandering or anything. And, and everybody's like, Oh, don't be so judgmental when you state a preference, but it's like, no, it is my preference. And it's my opinion of it. The NAB just stinks. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. I mean, it's worse than the ISIL, the ICEL uh, translation of the Psalms. I can't even, I don't even, I can't even stand those. I mean, it's yeah, fun. It's, it's you, really we, we use the Septuagint at my Melkite parish and, um, even my old confraternity version of the Psalms is is awesome. I mean, what's wrong with with things like uh, one of the one of the phrases from the Psalms that always stands out in my head is that uh, in that it's praising all of creation and and it comes up to the line and the great beast you made to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! You know, some of them could translate that as Leviathan and, and Leviathan, yeah. which you made to have fun. But I mean, it's like, what's wrong? Yeah, okay, yeah, I can't. I I don't. I can't explain it. I don't know uh, which here, beast here we they're go. talking Are you about. Ready? Sure. Are you ready for this? So it's First uh, Corinthians three fifteen. Uh huh. I'll, I'll read it for you in the NAB translation. It says, "If someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire." And the uh, footnote says, "Will be saved." Although Paul can envision very harsh divine punishments, he appears optimistic about the success of divine corrective means both here and elsewhere. The text of version of verse 15, rather, has sometimes been used to support the notion of purgatory, though it does not envision this. Huh. <laughs> I guess uh, all the Father's commentary on this being about purgatory must not have also envisioned this. Now, okay, now this is interesting to me. While you were reading that, I pulled up the DRBO, which has the shallow inner notes. Um, Shallowner notes are pretty much regarded, or at least were until Vatican II, as like the de facto, um, you know, that's, those are your notes that you start all of your uh, uh, biblical understanding with. On verse 12, which is up above, now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, <laughs> and going on, the note of verse 12 it, it it starts off, the foundation is Christ and his doctrine. But then you go down a little bit. The building upon this foundation, gold, silver, and precious stones, signifies the more perfect preaching and practice of the gospel. The wood, hay, and stubble, such preaching as that of the Corinthian teachers, who affected the pomp of words and human eloquence, and such practice as is mixed with much imperfection and many lesser sins. Now the day of the Lord and his fiery trial... And it's in parentheses, it says, in the particular judgment immediately after death shall make manifest yeah, what say. sort. Yeah. So it's imme- it's referencing immediately. Now, the, the, that note's not on verse 15, though. So That's the a- note, so I'll give you another one for this. So St. Thomas, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he's talking, when he's commenting on this, he has a commentary on First Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Uh He's talking about, uh, let's see what verse he's actually commenting on. Uh, it looks like, so it looks like it's early on in that section. Um, he says, quoting uh, St. Paul, the fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries around about. But the day of the Lord, which occurs at death, 
will be revealed in the fire of purgatory, which the elect will be cleansed, mm-hmm. if any cleansing is required. And in another spot, he says, it is not punished for so works by the fire of purgatory or by the fire which goes before the face of the judge. And likewise, later on, these abide this to the merit both of the fire and purgatory and the fire which goes before the face of the judge. And then finally, he concludes by talking about a man's work is said to burn in two ways. In one way, on the part of the worker, inasmuch he is afflicted by the fire of tribulation on account of the immoderate attachment he has to earthly things and by the fire of purgatory or by the fire which goes before the face of the judge on account of his venial sins. Furthermore, the fire of purgatory is the fire which goes before the face of the judge and will not leave any of these things to act as remedy or as merit. So even St. Thomas, right, understands here that you've got this fire functioning in a couple different ways, but every single time you mention that, purgatory has to be in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd, I hadn't heard... I. Mm. I'm kind of I'm well. I guess I'm not surprised because it's one of the reasons I just don't like the NAB. Yeah, I, and I don't like it either. Speaking of St. Paul's things, that they, I mean, St. Paul speaking of of the virtue of charity, and charity has technical meaning, right? And and it's different than the word love. You know, love, love, besides all of the different aspects of love that can be implied by the the singular word in English, love, you know, referring to agape versus eros and all that, that, that very academic discussion. The, we, we talk about faith, hope, and love. People like, you know, talk about that as the, as the divine virtues, but no, it's faith, hope, and charity. Yeah. And and so St. Paul was referencing charity, the divine virtue, not this love that's the hippie love, LSD love, everybody, that kind of thing, or felt banished. Yeah, and the problem is we've gotten so used to just using love as this kind of catch-all. Yeah, so that, why that did they capitulate in a, in a biblical translation? That's, it just drives me crazy. Yeah. Uh, so now you got me looking. I'm, I was trying to find... Uh, uh, I pulled up my uh, my Chris Ostom homilies and I'm looking for. Oh, uh, yeah, he's great in he's great in Corinthians. Um, and of course, I'm not finding it real quick. But I mean, the problem, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, the best on on. It just makes sense to me though that Luther is undermining the method of salvation, uh, faith yeah. by works, and all that. He he has no need for purgatory, does he? No. And not only does he not have a need for purgatory, he thinks that he is the authority by which you can determine whether purgatory exists or not, how it exists, how we ought to think about it and the ways in which it ought to function. Mm -hmm. That's almost more dangerous than the fact that he just doesn't believe in it or doesn't have time for it. Right. Mm hmm. Because by placing himself as the final arbiter, as the final judge over those things, he ends up putting himself in a position of way more authority than simply saying, I don't think that purgatory exists. He puts himself in a position to say, okay, here's how all of these things function. Here's the way that the four last things actually work. And what's funny is if you read... uh, if you read Pope Leo's condemnation of Luther, 
one of the things that he points out is how inconsistent Luther is in his condemnations. So on one hand, he'll say, the souls in purgatory uh, can't be freed by these means. And then on the other hand, he'll say, oh, but the church doesn't have the authority to decide who uh, who's freed from purgatory. So he kind of wants to have it both ways. He hasn't yeah. quite gotten to the point where he, he can really completely say, no, this isn't the case. Purgatory is just not a thing. Well, it, am I, would I be restating Luther incorrectly if I said that I understand what Luther thought of justification is that once you made an elect, an election towards, and I don't want to confuse it with Calvin because Calvin has his own mess on his other side. But Luther is pretty much the same way where he thinks that the election towards grace kind of remits all sin and all, yeah, guilt, so in, all guilt of sin, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's in this weird place where he's got this forensic version of atonement where Christ's death and resurrection on the cross doesn't make us holy, but God considers us holy in virtue of that death and resurrection. So to, to give kind of a practical example, Christ's death and resurrection on the cross doesn't vivify you. It doesn't give you the grace or the strength to be a good, holy person who follows the Ten Commandments and follows the precepts of the church. Hmm. For Luther, because he wasn't that person himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for Luther, what Christ's death on the cross does is, in spite of your sinfulness, causes God the Father, in spite of his wrath and anger towards you, to consider you holy and just, in spite of how you actually are. It's the imputed versus imparted righteousness that we see kind of Luther pushing. And more importantly, he believes that the will is in bondage to either God or Satan. Either God rides us like a horse in bondage to heaven, or Satan rides us as a horse in bondage to hell. Hmm. Kind of a perversion of the two standards, because the way I picked it is I get to decide which one of the two ride me. Yeah, well, and if that's the case, how could you have any room for purgatory? What role would purgatory have, or what function could it have? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, uh, you know, if that's all it is, is uh, 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 glory, glory, hallelujah, and I'm saved. I mean, and there's no, I mean, I, and that's kind of, I'm down here in the Bible Belt, and, you know, it's funny because I, I had a neighbor ask me one time, and he's a great guy. Uh, I like talking to him, and he, he, I could tell he was real shy about it. And he, he, he asked me one day, he said, well, John, I I really enjoy talking about the Bible with you, but I I don't really know if you've been saved. <laughs> and you know, and he said, "If you have you have you have you chosen Jesus Christ as your savior?" I said, "Every day, sometimes many times a day." <laughs> and he he was really confused when I said that. <laughs> Well, it's the same confusion I brought up earlier when I when I talk to friends of mine and I, I say, man, I really hope I make it, right? Yeah. Because in their mind, a statement like that is completely nonsensical. See, that's so foreign how could you to me. Hope, how could you hope that you get to heaven? Either you decide you're going as if you have some sort of ultimate say in the matter, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either you decide you're going or you don't. 
So it's this funny piece where, kind of coming back to Luther's weird thing, so you're in bondage either to God or to Satan, right? Either God's writing you to heaven or Satan's writing you to hell. Mm -hmm. But on the same token, it's this presumption where we decide, yeah, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Or no, I'm not saved. Or, Or I don't care about it. But but think about that presumption for a second. The decision that I'm saved and thus I am going to heaven is if I have some sort of ultimate determinative say in whether I make it to heaven or not. Do these people, I mean, how do they not see, I mean, how many choices do, do we make a day? Hundreds, probably. And they, they think that they only have to make this choice once. I see. This is the part I've never gotten, and I've heard it described to me a million different ways. I just don't see how they couldn't see that after you do this, you could still make a bad decision to go to hell. So you know what's interesting? I think the most helpful way for me to understand it, and I didn't realize this until I became Catholic. I think the most helpful way to think about it is it's an issue of identity. So if you think about what makes you a Catholic, mm-hmm. well. What made you a Catholic was you were baptized at some point as a Catholic, mm-hmm. right? And even if at every single point of your life you chose to turn away from the church, you would still be a Catholic. You might be a poor Catholic. You might be a non-practicing Catholic. We have all sorts of ways of delineating the sort of Catholic that you are. But you would fundamentally be a Catholic. For Protestants, I think it's similar in that when you're a Protestant, when you're saved, quote-unquote, it's an identity thing. And so if you were to ask a Protestant, are there any Christians in hell? They would look at you like you're crazy, and they go, well, no, of course not. Wow. If you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. Because it's an identity thing. I see. By being a part of this identity, by identifying yourself with this group, you are de facto the sort of person that goes to heaven. It would be like saying, John, are there any saints in hell? Well, you would laugh and go, well, no, of course not. By definition, a saint is someone in heaven. Right. Well, it's it's similar for them. Are there any Christians in hell? Well, of course not. That's silly. Christians mm. are the sort of people who are in heaven. Whereas you or I, if you were to ask, hey, are there Catholics in hell? We go, oh, well, hell yeah, there's a ton of them. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. And let me tell you all the popes and bishops that are in hell, too. <laughs> let, me, let me show you all the pictures of them suffering in there. <laughs> because, I was just going to say, do they think that Judas suddenly wasn't a Christian? Well, you get a couple different views, right? I mean, one of those views is that he never was a Christian. Oh, he was a crypto-Christian. Right. Another view is that he was and then wasn't. He he loses his salvation in kind of the way a, a Catholic would be. But then you'd go, oh, well, he's not a Christian anymore. Mm. But it's an identity thing. Mm-hmm. You and I would, would be completely comfortable saying there are Catholics who go to hell, Pro- yeah. probably quite a few Catholics who end up in hell. And, and <clears throat> I think it's really helpful to kind of – understand and engage this because whenever you engage with protestants at least the ones i've i've spoken with one of the first things you'll hear from them is oh well what about all the bad catholics i know well my catholic neighbor you should see the things that he does right Mm -hmm. my my catholic friend she goes out and she parties and she drinks and she lives all sorts of sinful lives on the on the weekdays and then she goes to mass on the weekends Mm -hmm. well for a protestant those two things can never 
can never make sense for them, right? It, it can never come together. But for a Catholic, I, I probably scandalize some of my Protestant friends, but I, I kind of shrug my shoulders and go, yeah, that's that's about right. That's about what we are. <laughs> because being a Catholic, by definition, doesn't make you holy. It, it doesn't make you particularly good. That's why hell's full of us, right? Yeah. Catholicism is an identity that we're brought into at at baptism, and then it requires something on our part, right? It requires our constant cooperation with sanctifying grace, with actual grace, or with the re-reception of that grace in, in the sacraments of confession in order to establish us. The, the problem is Protestants look at us and go, oh, well, if you're a Christian, quote-unquote, you must be going to heaven. Well, no, for, for Catholics, you need that cooperation, right? You need that part on behalf of the human, and that's where that bondage of the will thing gets in. Uh, it's, so that, you know, if we, it's like identity politics, except it's identity religion. Kind of. Well, they don't, even in this, the Greeks invented that. I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, I I'm gonna have to think about what you're saying. I like it because because it 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 actually gave me a lot of better understanding on it than I've had ever really. Because yeah, I mean that's the way I think about it, and I think it's the most helpful way to think about it. And then it helps it helps then when you're describing it to Protestants because when I come to a Protestant friend and I go, yeah, I really hope I make it to heaven. Like I, I really hope that I'm I make it to purgatory. When they look at you crazy, you go. Look, the fact that I'm Catholic doesn't mean that I'm going to heaven any more than the fact that someone calls themselves a Christian, and that's the key piece for them. Yeah, calls themselves a Christian is going to heaven, and then and then it kind of clicks from them and go, oh yeah, because internal in their mind they have this this it kind of essential dichotomy between real Christians and people who just call themselves Christians. Mm. And, and so when you make that really clear, and you go, yeah, my my job is really to work my way towards salvation every day that freaks them out and talk about a good death and that totally freaks them out. But yeah. at least it gives them a context within which they can understand it. Right. And they can start to think about it and it, it kind of puts it in a context that they can kind of wrap their minds around. That's interesting because, huh. you know, you got me thinking about now, you know, cause I, I do, occasionally run into the like that conversation i brought up I, I run into those conversations down here and i've never quite even with talking with them down here because invariably what will happen down here is you start talking to them about what they think salvation is and if you're talking to um, a methodist they start telling you all the things that the baptists get wrong if you're talking to a yeah. Lutheran, they're telling you what the methodists get wrong and, and and i'm like this doesn't help me i can't figure out what yeah. you believe you know <laughs> Wait, are you telling me that a religion based on protesting something is only good at telling you what other people get wrong and not what they <laughs> believe themselves? I find that hard to believe, John. I, I think you're just missing the mark. Well, and it's it's funny. I I I, I uh, uh, hip pocketed this quote for our conversation, uh, and it, it actually has to do with the Antichrist. But it's funny because it's. Uh, it fits right in with what we're talking about. It was St. Vincent. I was looking at St. Vincent Ferrer because, uh, and I'm, I'm probably giving some of our readers, uh, or some of our listeners, a, a hint as to, uh, uh, another episode upcoming, 
but uh, I was doing research on uh, Antichrist and looking up old stuff, and um, St. Vincent's had a quote about the, uh, Vincent Ferrer, actually, about the Antichrist, and he talks about the deception that the Antichrist will bring about. I thought this was interesting. He said, people of simple faith will actually stand up quite well to the trials of the Antichrist. And his observation is that one of the major causes of them withstanding such trials is that people of simple faith will also be conversant with the prophecies about the Antichrist. And uh, um, like St. Peter's, like Peter's brother, Andrew, they will believe him. At the same time, the learned and the arrogant who are immersed in pride and learning will swallow the Antichrist's blandishments hook, line, and sinker. And I think it's kind of funny because, I don't know, maybe because I, I keep dwelling on the idea that the Blessed Mother, when she came to Fatima, came to little children and showed them hell. You know, and, and I, I, I'm like, you know, you can take this intellectual high road and work through, it's not to say that we shouldn't be familiar with theology and St. Thomas Aquinas and all this. I don't mean that. But there, it, it kind of highlighted this two modes of thought that I think a lot of time, and I think if it's fair to say that Protestants like to relish a, a, a certain sort of intellectualism about their faith. Yeah, I mean, so uh, my my critique has always been that it's a ultimately a rote intellectual faith. Yeah. As weird as that sounds, because they're so emotional, right? They're so emotionally invested and attached to their religion that can sound odd on its face. Um, Because you're flipping through the channels, right? You flip to TBN, and they're Mm -hmm. swaying, and they've got their hands up, and they're really emotionally engaged. But uh, I think ultimately, it's a religion that's founded on a sort of detached intellectualism because ultimately salvation comes down to faith alone Mm -hmm. and faith for a Protestant is not what St. Thomas meant or what the fathers meant because faith involves for St. Thomas and the fathers participation, union, uniting yourself with God. You can't know something unless you've been united to it. Mm -hmm. But for Protestants, it's purely a rote intellectualism where it goes, okay, I believe these right things, and thus uh, I belong to this group, and thus I'm saved. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger uh, writes in Call to Communion, the big difference between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, Protestants will get together, and they will form a church based on a bunch of people who are like-minded. They all kind of believe and understand and think the same thing, and thus they start a church. Whereas Catholics are exactly the opposite, right? We start a church founded on communion, on the Eucharist, on mm-hmm. with Rome, and thus our beliefs are united. Our faith is all one. We all believe the same thing because we're all united to the Bishop of Rome, not because We've gotten a bunch of like-minded people together. And all you have to do is walk into a Catholic parish to see that. I mean, yeah, I can't speak for your parish, but I know mine has a lot of people who are very different. Yeah, well, that's the that's, backgrounds of different places. Now, see, that's funny because I want to seize that because the rest of the St. Vincent quote, this is funny. You're anticipating where St. Vincent's mind was going. He said that 
argument may be good for the strengthening of the intelligence, but is not the true foundation of faith. Those whose faith rests on reason will lose it when they hear the specious reasoning of the Antichrist. Those, on the contrary, who rely on a firm belief founded on obedience will reply, no, that's what they're saying to the Antichrist, away with your arguments, such reasonings are not the grounds of my faith. Yeah, and that's exactly what St. Thomas says, right? Yeah. yeah. He talks about how faith is the strong foundation upon which our beliefs are held. And then on top of that, you have reason which helps you understand and is a very important way for building up and developing that understanding. But ultimately, our assurance comes from faith, not from the conclusions of our reason. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. So just to dispense with Luther for a second, you know, that's one of the problems I have with it, with Luther, with Sola Scriptura. I mean, our Lord never wrote. So how can you say that all the faith's based on a book? Yeah. And, and not only did he never write, the, the sacred scriptures certainly never claim to be the sole or only description of the faith. Yeah. Uh, uh. But what do you think about uh, the idea? I mean, I don't know. I think it's it it we're kind of circling in on this idea. I do think it's interesting that the people that are praising um number of people that said, oh, this is great that we're coming to uh, the commemoration of Luther and we can reach new bridges and stuff like that. A lot of them are the same people that are coming out and popularizing the idea that God wants to save everything so nobody's in hell. Yeah, um, it, it's almost like the people who think that Luther in heaven are crypto-Protestants themselves. Yeah, because with the way you describe Protestants, it's making me think, well, I guess I'm not so crazy to think that these people are, are, are making themselves Protestants. Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at how many Catholics ascribe to Protestant views of salvation, right there you go, oh, well, that's a that's a pretty strong break. Or the number of Catholics who would deny the Catholic Church's teachings on merit. Mm-hmm. Right, the teachings of the Council of Trent, which were reaffirmed by Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Those teachings on merit, you won't find anywhere in Luther, and you won't find anywhere in those same people who think that Luther is a mystic of grace. So I don't understand. Let me let me do one more restatement to bring us back around to purgatory. Now that we've kind of like kicked kicked Luther a little bit, and why why they're probably wrong on hell and a bunch of other stuff. It makes sense from the Catholic viewpoint of how our salvation works that when we talk about missing the mark, um, you know, we always talk about you go to, okay, let's say, let's say when I was at your house, I stole 10 bucks and um, I sent you five later after I confessed it. And the priest said, you got to pay him back. I still owe you five bucks. Yeah. But even, and, and I still owe you five, even if I don't have the money to send you. Yeah. But then I get hit by a bus. Still owe me that five. Yeah. So I'm I get to, after you in the afterlife for that fiver. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think we see we see also now in that in that in that because justice is perfect. Why our Lord says in you know, the parable of the of the of the 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 master that forgives the the slave and he turns around and starts whipping everybody for their two dollars. Yeah. But 
it is something that if you think about it in terms of strict justice, you know that I can't be perfect at that point and there's no imperfection in heaven, right? Yeah. So in the in in the Protestant view, they would say, Oh, well, I was a Christian, so I'm going to heaven, but that won't stand because I've left the debt. So what they what they would say is because Christ died on the cross, when you stand before the judgment seat, God doesn't see you as you are. Huh. Instead of seeing you how, how you actually are, he sees Christ instead of you. So he's like a good uncle that just reaches in his pocket and says, here's, here's the five bucks that John owes you, Landon. Yeah, it's almost this kind of sleight of hand where he goes, oh, well, I don't really know the way things are, so I guess you're good enough to go in because you're a friend <laughs> <bad sport. laughs> I mean, that's not a fair way. I know that's not a fair way to describe it, but that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, I like the idea of purgatory, particularly because in the absence of there being purgatory, uh, I'd have to go, you it's know, all or nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. Because you could, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can make that all. And that's the, and not only that, I mean, if you, you our, our Lord set the standard, we said, be perfect, be thou perfect. Like my father in heaven. Yeah. Or like your father in heaven. And, um, if you can't get perfect, if you, if, and not only that, I think it's God's way of dealing with the uh, with the imperfection of this world that death may come at a time that's not uh, just right. Yeah, purgatory gives you yeah. a chance to to uh, you know to to, to further further uh, purify what you should have done here. Yeah, we think, pray for a happy death, but not all of us are going to get it. See, and that's I mean we could I mean we could go on for hours and hours because I I I, I don't understand. For me, I get it. Okay, I I have to do penance and fasting and mortification because that effort, if this makes sense, wins graces that further perfect me in other things. Yeah. But there's no concept of that among Protestants, is there? No, no, because there's no concept of the treasury of merits. But they wouldn't think like, okay, if I just make a choice to myself that I'm not eating meat on Friday, that that actually makes me stronger against uh, other sins. They might say that it gives you discipline, uh, but it doesn't give you any sort of change spiritually or metaphysically, right? It doesn't impart any grace to you. There's nothing supernatural about it. And that's what they mean by, uh, by uh, uh, faith by works. They don't think that right. those Okay. The best that they might say is that God might reward you for your willingness to do that. Like I get my gold star on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah. What He's do I get give for you that? More of that imputed righteousness. Do I get more more ice- more, more imputation? What? I don't get more ice cream at the banquet. No. Oh, I know you get more treasures in heaven. <laughs> well, you get three crowns instead of just two crowns. So we were talking about charity. There's this thing, I, I was going to do a blog post on it. I'm going to run this past you. I think the new sin is un, is uncharity. And, and and I don't mean it in terms of a uncharitableness. Yeah. I want to make the play on the words because that's like what they, what happened to this father, Wine Andy. Yeah. And, and what was the criticism is that his letter wasn't charitable. 
or it wasn't charitable right. for him to post the letter. I I don't know. I read the statement from the USCCB and it I couldn't figure it out. Which, like, by the way, never comes around to actually condemning him or the letter. Yeah. So I, what did he do wrong? <laughs> what did he actually do wrong, or how did he get in trouble? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <what> he, I, <laughs> not to not to show my hand here, but I think those are two different questions, right? I mean, what he did wrong was dare to say anything that didn't follow with the exact lockstep belief that the current prevailing views in the church mm-hmm. describe. What did he actually do wrong? I don't think he did anything wrong. I mean, I think he did exactly what a pastor is obliged to do. Yeah. He saw a grave issue. He made that issue known to his superiors. His superiors ignored it. And so for the good of the faithful, he made clear that they understood what the problems were and what the concerns were there. I mean, we're not talking about just like uh, uh, somebody shaking their fist. At, this guy's got lots of theological cred. Yeah, so, you know, I, I have to say, um, I, I actually have, uh, Father Wynandy actually is a really important person in my life, not that I've ever met him, um, but he was a really important part of my conversion. Really? Uh, when I was still Protestant, I came across some of his writings and some of his books, and they were a big part of helping me bridge the gap between what the church had taught previously and the idea that there were still people doing theology, real theology now. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Wynandy was one of those people who's doing real theology now. One of his books on uh, whether God suffers is particularly good, and that was a, a really important piece for me as I was reading Dionysius and Anselm and Aquinas and trying to understand how that bridges into what modern Catholicism looks like. Father Wynandy was a really important part of my conversion. So I have to say, he, he he's actually really important for me. I, I have a lot of time for him. And so when I saw what he did and what he wrote, uh, I think he's spot on. You realize the danger he was to society and he, how he had to be removed from office, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's your classic. <laughs> he said something. He, he told the emperor that the emperor, he doesn't have any clothes on anymore. And so the USCCB knows enough to know that they can't, go after him for what he actually said, right? You can't condemn what he actually said. So what do you have to do? You have to kind of talk around it and give some platitudes about kindness and, and as you said, uncharitableness and uh, making sure that everyone's on the same page and everyone's coloring inside the lines. Mm. Mm. So he didn't toe the line, but I mean, I don't know. My, my suspicion is that, that, that here, um, it really was that it's not that he had questions. It's that he let others know that he had the questions in a way that was well-reasoned and that, uh, I think, I, I mean, that's what kind of got me is that it was the fear of the USCCB that they, you know, somebody within there might disagree with the Pope. Yeah. And I think the most important piece in all of this is whether it's Father Wynandy or the Dubia Cardinals or the Fraternal Correction, I have yet to see anyone engage their arguments in a negative way. Yes. I've yet to see anyone who actually engages their arguments and says, here's why these arguments aren't the case. I've seen a lot of people poisoning the well and attacking them personally and attacking their um, credibility and their personality. 
I, oh, yeah, let's just name one of them. I saw Father James Martin doing that right away. I thought, wow, oh, this yeah. guy. Not only, I mean, Father Wine India, I think probably the biggest thing that I'm impressed by him is that he got the USCCB to do something instantly. <laughs> um, I mean, for somebody that sat there for like eight years waiting to spin their wheels, I mean, when I knew that the right the right translation for the English was in a book that we used for our Latin mass uh, at the parish I went to growing up that had an imprimatur and a pastoral message from Cardinal Bernardin in it, who was then Archbishop Bernardin. I'm like, all they have to do is go get that book that we used when I was, it was in my parish growing up and it's got all the English properly translated. Yeah. um, Interesting aside, it was Cardinal Bernardin that brought the Latin mass back to Chicago after it had uh, elapsed. That's kind of a fun story for another time. Well, I mean, and he left he left uh, old St. Mary's in Cincinnati alone all that time that uh, um, that it was I don't know if you know the story, but old St. Mary's had Dominicans there and the Dominicans had left and old St. Mary's had the Dominican right. And it wasn't until Bernard went up to Chicago and Polarchik came in and Polarchik said there haven't been Dominicans there for years. You need to stop saying that mass. Yeah, I mean, for all of Bernadine's faults, he was the classic liberal in yeah. that he was going to allow everyone, including the Latin mass types, to continue to coexist. I mean, this is not to make excuses for all of Bernadine's ills. I mean, there were many. Well, yeah. But he he was he was really the true kind of classical liberal in that even the Latin mass folks were allowed a space. And that's certainly not, not the case now. No. But that, I mean... Back to Father in his in his letter. It, I mean, one of the things I've wondered, and I, I read this at some point ago, uh, early on in the in the Dubia discussions, that the greatest crime of the the Amoris Laetitiae, uh, I mean, even even the name of itself, the joy of love. I mean, it's it's it should be the joy of love. But this question in there, I mean, I know people who found themselves in an irregular marriage and they went through uh, private vows so that they could return to the sacraments and other things. And all of those people who did things the right way, the way the church has always believed. um, And I know another couple that was in a second marriage and watched them for decades. They, they didn't, they had children and um, took care of their children uh, but they didn't go. They didn't approach the sacraments. They came yeah. to, but they came to mass. They were there for, they were there for forty hour devotions. They were there for every mass. They were there for every feast day. No doubt in my mind that. But they would never presume that all they have to do in the, is just. I mean, they would find that idea offensive. That yeah. all they have to do is just wish for a different reality, and they could go to communion. Yeah, and I mean. What's so important is that those people lived and acted those ways, but that isn't the reason why this is the right thing to do. I mean, their courage is is really important. We ought to talk about those people. We ought to hold them up. We ought to show them as examples. Mm-hmm. But even if they weren't there, even if your parish was full of people who did the wrong thing, mm-hmm. it's still not okay, right? Well, somebody had said that somebody said that the whole problem that Amoris was trying to get around is that 
oh, we don't want to judge people anymore. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I thought, uh, is that what's crept up into the morality, the thinking of even the cardinals? That, uh, well, we don't want to put the church in the place to judge people. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been a, certainly a constant common refrain. I think coming back to Father Wynandy, mm-hmm. he's dangerous because he gave an argument. He made an argument about the way things are instead of simply waxing about personal stories or sharing his feelings. <laughs> and that's why... <laughs> And that's why Father that's why Father Martin has to respond the way he does, right? He can't respond with an argument. He can't respond describing the ways that Father Wynandy's wrong. He has to respond by conflating different problems and by accusing him of stuff that he never did. I saw one of his posts on Facebook where he was doing that, and my comment to him was, why don't you embrace this sinner the way you tell me to embrace the others? Yeah. But there's no room for for sinners who don't toe the party line. I guess that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> there's um, there's a great <laughs> there's a great quote from uh, a British comedy from the '80s called uh, "Yes Minister." It's the the premise is about an an MP uh, in Britain who ends up becoming prime minister, and he's faced with the duty of deciding the next uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. And as he's trying to understand the categories in the Church of England and trying to understand what goes into making an Archbishop and why certain people are chosen or not chosen, he comes to the conclusion that the perfect bishop for the Church of England is a cross between a socialist and a socialite. Hmm. Um, And I can't help but wonder if that's not a similar sort of circumstance that we have now, where as long as you sound good, as long as you have the proper socialite upbringing and you put your tea in the right spot and you make sure you use the right forks, you're going to be okay from a kind of sociological standpoint. Yeah. But that the worst thing that you could do is actually speak out and make an argument about those kind of sacred cows that are, that are held fast. Because as soon as you do that, You've got all the typical characters coming out, and they're not going to make an argument. They're not going to tell you why you're wrong. They're simply going to assassinate your character and tell you why you're not worth listening to and why it's not important that anyone engage with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it happened with the Dubia Cardinals. It happened with the Fraternal Correction. It happened with Father Wynandy. And I have to say, I think what makes Father Wynandy so um, courageous is that he knew exactly what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Having seen those, how those other two went down, he knew exactly what was going to go on, and he did exactly what he knew he needed to do. And I have to say, there's there's a lot of respect for a guy who can come out, say exactly what he thinks, and be willing to stick with that, in spite of the fact that he knows it's going to destroy his career, going to abolish any sort of influence he has moving forward. Um, it's kind of the opposite of the playing politics that we see that's so common with so many uh, prelates and so many guys in the church. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he mm-hmm. went right for it. And I think because he knew what had to be done, he was willing to 
to suffer that. And, and I've got a lot of time for someone who's willing to do that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if it just would have been about, if he just would have been arguing for global warming or, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I hate to, uh, I hate to bring this up because I know this is a cudgel that gets used against the church. So I don't, I don't like bringing this up, but, uh, Michael Vernon Doherty made the comment that uh, if, if only if only the U.S. bishops had been so quick to act on pedophilia, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation that we are now. Well, I like I said, I, I admire that he made the uh, USCCB uh, move so fast, yeah. and and he did uh, he did manage to uh, uh, find us uh, the one sin that Father Martin will condemn. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly not any of the others. And and I thought it was kind of funny on the, uh, and, and I do mean the uh, the colloquialism here. I'm going to speak in the Queen's English. That's my hint for everybody. Uh, that right on the heels of all this, the Vatican did ban cigarettes. But they'll still sell cigars. <laughs> but I'm bumped. Oh, come on. I need a rim shot. Uh. I just think it's it's okay. So we're gonna be sure that this. I mean, let's just put us all in perspective. How upside down everything is right now. Um, and speaking of the Antichrist, speaking of purgatory, the four last things, and how Martin Luther and uh, people who love him today think there's no hell. I just thought it was incredible to me that the for all the troubles going on in the Vatican for an auditor that was uh, fired after he started to bring up all the audit exceptions with the Vatican bank for all of the other things like the homosexual party in the Vatican that uh, are several of them now that have been reported. We're going to worry about selling cigarettes because it might contribute to p uh, poor health. Yeah. Um, as someone who's not a cigarette smoker, it's particularly humorous given the fact that, They've got serious issues with money laundering, including supporting terrorism around the world. I know. But, but that's, that's the piece that they decide to go after. Again, I'm not a cigarette smoker. It doesn't impact me anyway. But I, I will say that I heard from more than one priest that, that this was going to be a particularly um, disliked action by, by the Holy Father. I the, thought the it was... Italians will put up with a lot, but they're not going to put up with you taking away their cigarettes. Well, and I thought it was funny, you know, that the, uh, uh, the post I did on uh, Father Wine Andy was we can all breathe easier now that Father Wine Andy's resigned. And I thought I need to do the follow up. And I thought, no, 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 no. I was going to say we can all breathe easier now that the cigarettes have been. Now I was going to say since the Vatican banned, since the <laughs> since the Vatican has banned the cigarettes. I mean. So the idea is, oh, yeah, we can all breathe easier now, but we really can't because the smoke of Satan is still just polluting everything. It's not going to do anything to get rid of all this confusion. Yeah. You see all those all those nice metaphors and puns that can be had back and forth on this? I mean, it's I, I was like, this is just ripe, ripe for a cheeky post. Yeah. Um, that That might be one of those that gets banned off of Facebook. <laughs> well look i do think it's interesting and our, our listeners will probably like it that uh a couple episodes ago the show title had to do with father harden and when you go and you look in the apple podcast app 
the description of the show says Father H star 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 N. And they uh, blocked Father's name because I guess they think that it's a a, a bad word. And I was like, you got to oh. be, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, come on. <clears throat> so I, it, it is the sign of the times though, that we're going to worry about, uh, tobacco and, um, we're going to worry about how you say things, not what you say. And, um, um, I mean, you know, thank God for purgatory though, because for, for, for all of the uncharitable thoughts that this stuff gives me. Um, um, I'll still be able to possibly pass through the fire and have them purged from me because uh, it gets frustrating, Lynn, and it's it's a frustrating times we're in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't seem like there's much to take solace in, that just about around every corner there's something difficult or frustrating or something that makes your day just a little bit worse <laughs> in spite of whatever you're doing. <laughs> Well, I know that uh, at least you got the the family rosary, and and as much as it, uh, you recently had commented that in your illness, your children got to lead it one day, and it, would it take you forty minutes to say that day? Yeah, um, it was. De- <laughs> talk about getting time out of purgatory. It was definitely uh, an exercise, and uh, yeah, de- definitely an exercise in penance. Ah, uh, but I bet it was. You know, at least you you'll you'll miss days like that when 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 you could hear your children take ten minutes to say one Hail Mary, but. No, they're they're really sweet. The the problem isn't the prayers; it's all the extracurriculars that go on in between the prayers that causes so much problem. <laughs> <laughs> we do have the rosary. We do have our Lady's words. I mean, there is there is hope and consolation in it. But it it it, it wow. I I I look at the stuff that's going on. I'm like, you know, that fire coming from heaven just doesn't look so bad right now. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I'm not saying that I pray for the divine chastisement every day, but. Eh. Well, and let's look at it in the terms of purgatory, too. If purgatory, like like St. Ambrose says, is that or like one Corinthian says, that fire that purifies and takes the things, the bad foundation out uh, that burns the shaft away. That is why that angel showed up at Fatima, isn't it? Because that's what we're dealing yeah. with here, isn't it? Yeah. It's clearing out the uh, dead wood in the church and purifying it back to those uh, precious metals. So as much as we don't like it, at least our lady will give us some consolations if we do what she asks, which is to pray for the conversion of these poor sinners, man. Yeah. And our Lord will only go so long before he decides to rein his church back in. Yeah. Well, and I thought um, it's, well, we started with purgatory. We've been through Luther and we've been through, well, we've kind of been all over the place, which is great. Why don't you take us out with a prayer, Landon? Sounds good. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Secret Herod and Principio et Nunca Semper. In Secula Seculorum. Amen. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Pray for us. You have been listening to the Bellarmine Forum Podcast, Episode 10 with Landon De Pasquale. I'm your show host, John B. Manos, President of the Bellarmine Forum. Production of this uh, episode was underwritten by an anonymous donor that asks you to say your rosary daily, which, by the way, would probably go a very long way towards minimizing time spent in purgatory. If you would like to underwrite production of the podcast, contact the forum using the contact form in the website bellarmineforum.org or call us. This podcast is a production of the Bellarmine Forum, formerly known as the Wanderer Forum Foundation, founded in 1965 
you know, back then when they still believed there was a hell and that, that people looked for a way to avoid it. On the heels of Vatican II is a faithful enclave of the Catholic faith. You know, that thing that really wasn't changed much by Vatican II. Trent still holds. Don't believe what they tell you. All that stuff's still good. Luther was wrong. Without all the progressive modernist confusion, even though they call themselves so charitable and are worried about how they say things, they're wrong. Our producer sits at the right hand of his father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And yes, there will be judgment, even though everybody says we're not supposed to judge. Our executive director made all things visible and invisible, including purgatory and heaven. Oh, I hope we all get to heaven. Our technical director is an unnamed angel assigned to us by the producer per show. The Bellarmine Forum is a non-profit public charity, and all donations are tax-deductible to the maximum extent permitted by law. This show is copyrighted by the Bellarmine Forum 2017, to the greater glory of God and the honor of his blessed mother.